0: Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Well, I'm not going to complain about a blowout heavy slate in the SEC on what I dubbed Pumpkin Patch Saturday. And I actually think, I know the noon slate was a little bit crazy, um, but I still think that it kind of was Pumpkin Patch Saturday, whatever. We can discuss that a little bit later, but I, I'm, I'm not going to complain because if I wanted to watch a close football game, All I had to do was either flip on Oklahoma, sweating it out against Kansas, or Illinois and Penn State in a nine-overtime pillow fight for the ages. Will, you loved that game more than any this year, didn't you? That game,
1: at the same time, it was, that game was drugs. Like, the the Machine Gun Kelly quote, where he was like, I am weed, that game was drugs. You watch the game and you lose all spatial awareness. You watch it and you go, I couldn't have been sitting here watching overtime games with two point conversions for an hour. And you look at your watch and you look at your friends and you're like, this is overtime number two or three, right? You go, no, no, this is number eight, dude. Go get a drink. You're going to be here for a second.
0: <laughs> I was baffled. And we're going to get into the new overtime rules. We'll talk about that a, a little bit later. But at one point, I thought they were just going to turn it into a punt contest. Just whoever can can put a, a punt closest to the goal line wins. That, let's just stop with the offense. We're not fooling anybody. It's not there today. Let's just punt the football. Let's do what we do best and see if we can figure this out. But yeah, we'll we'll get to all of that. Um, just a strange, strange day it was at Penn State. But the plan for today, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Because like I said, blowouts on blowouts. Got a few big picture things that I want to get to with a, with a few of the SEC games that we watched. I've also got an interview with Gene Chizik coming up in a little bit. That was actually supposed to be in the midweek pod, but without getting into the, the details that we had obtaining the interview file uh, that we use with our system, we ultimately are now going to run it in this episode instead. So talk to Chizik on Wednesday, but I think all of the things that he discussed, a lot of at Ogeron things and talked about SEC Coach of the Year race and, and all that I think are still very timely and will pertain to exactly what has gone on in the SEC. And then we're going to also get to some early talk- cocktail party thoughts at the very end, oh, yeah. but before before we do all of that, so I have a running joke with our producer Dan Matthews. Every time that I'll ask him to make a unique edit of sorts, he says, hey, you got to send me an extra box of, of Texas Pete. Now we're at two boxes. Now we're at three boxes. I don't have that type of pull and I, I wish i did i really do i i happily go to the grocery store and i give my american dollars for texas pete and i do so with a smile but if they wanted to send me a couple boxes so that i could do right by my producer our producer i would gladly take a break from you know paying my hard-earned american dollars probably i, I, w- I would be willing to do that if they felt it necessary but you person listening to this at home, in the car, at the gym, wherever you are, this is the perfect time of year to load up on Texas Pete, not only because it's football season, but also because right now for our listeners, you can go to TexasPete.com, you can get recipes, you can get t-shirts, hats, and again, hot sauces by the box. Get yourself one, get yourself two. That way you don't have to reach out to your friend or your coworker and say, hey, you owe me a bottle of Texas Pete or a box of Texas Pete. You already have it. If you do that, you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code SATURDAY DOWN SOUTH. That is all one word, all caps, SATURDAY DOWN SOUTH. That's all you got to do. TexasPete.com, SATURDAY DOWN SOUTH. Sauce like you mean it. All right, well, we were talking about this before we came on, and I thought you brought up a great point. You can kind of watch what happened with Alabama and Tennessee and frame any sort of narrative that you want. And you can kind of go in any which way. So uh, we're going to go in a couple different ways with this game. By the way, I should have made my lock of the week, my 52 to 24 prediction for this game. How about that? Because your boy nailed it. I haven't nailed much this year, but I nailed that one. That that was even better than last year's uh, Florida, Texas A&M prediction to be able to get that right on both sides. Mistakes were made in this game, whatever the case, that was actually a close football game for three quarters, and part of me was bracing for a sixty-minute thriller, and then another part of me, which will, as you know all too well, was like, eh. Classic Hypo would be getting out of the first quarter with a lead, and then not dialing up any more looks because the game script has gone away. And I know the final would probably suggest that that happened. And if you weren't watching that game, and if you just saw the twenty-eight points that Alabama scored in the fourth quarter, you're like, hey, Tennessee gets blown out by a rival again. Who would have? But thought? I want to. S- Right, like what we predicted. But I wanna start by saying that Tennessee has legit impressed me on almost a weekly basis. Like for the last five games, I ended up thinking more of the Vols than I did entering the night. So let's start with the good. Because uh, yes, there are no moral victories. Just like Josh Heupel, starting with the good. Exactly, that's what he does better than anybody. Josh Heupel can win a Super Bowl if he's just playing the first quarter. I said the the 24 points were happening if Hennon Hooker started. And as we found out, thankfully, Hennon Hooker was able to to grit his teeth and play uh, not at 100 percent. He looked a little bit hobbled when you saw him kind of have to, to make some plays with his legs, but still was absolutely capable. He played. Thank God Will Anderson didn't destroy him. Thank God Phil Mathis did not also destroy him, though it seemed like he tried there were moments that we saw the great recognition from Hendon Hooker in this offense. Alabama had three different coverage busts lead to scores. The past Tennessee regime ain't forcing three different coverage busts. And if they are Jared Garantano ain't, they ain't the guy getting them the football. All right. Like that, that's, that's part of the thing that I think is important to remember where that last one where Josh Job is just turned around, just not looking, at, at all. And it was almost a little bit reminiscent of the Derek Stingley, Devontae Smith play that everybody likes to bring up on well, Twitter. All why the time. was violence added to this conversation? I was listening to you <laughs> and we were having a good time.
1: Who needed that?
0: We all saw it. Well, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love that Hooker saw that right away. And boom, six points on the money. Not a Joe Milton throw through the end zone perfect exactly what you would hope to happen and it was almost one of these moments where if that happens in the in the first quarter alabama's still figuring things out you're like all right you know what whatever that's just kind of maybe alabama's a little bit sleepy that happened like like basically when when did that happen like late in the third quarter i believe it was and it was kind of a moment where you're like wait a minute is tennessee really going to make this a 60-minute football game because that's not the type of thing that you typically see alabama struggle with and it's also not the type of play that you see tennessee make it just isn't at least in years past so that that play at least gave tennessee a chance i'm going to make it my goal to come up with a creative nickname for fans of hendon hooker that doesn't play into his last name that's my goal just throwing it out there if anybody wants to help cookies i threw this out there that's too close, man. <laughs>
1: His name is Hooker. That could be wholesome. I maybe that's a word that I don't know about. I don't know.
0: Like playing hooky from school? Yeah,
1: exactly. Come on now. We're, we're wholesome. We're in the schoolyard here, boys.
0: I, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Maybe a little bit close. If you heard somebody, a group of people called hookies, what would you assume that they do for a living? Good question. Hen dogs. Hen dogs. All right. Okay. I think you could throw dogs on top of anything and it's going to sound good. (laughs) Wow, I I didn't know I had a talent for making up Hendon Hooker nicknames. This is great. Continue. Brainstorm. Yes. People at home brainstorm. We're going to be able to figure this out. And I promise we're going to be able to make a group, uh, a support group for Hendon Hooker fans because I am absolutely one. I love the way that he runs when plays break down. I've said that over and over. I, I love that he can actually make a defense pay and not overthrow receivers downfield. And he's got another year of eligibility after this one. And that's the thing that I keep forgetting because of 2020. Mm-hmm. So what his future holds, I hope he gets to be the guy coming back this year for Josh Heupel. And I hope that he's able to stay healthy because I, I truly think that with a full uh, additional offseason, he could be really fun to watch next year, especially as they get more talent around him because I think they will. I really do. I think kids are going to want to transfer to Tennessee in the, in the era in which... You don't have to sit a year if you transfer within conference anymore as well and you can play in that offense. Receivers are going to want to go and play that offense. Mm -hmm. I, I firmly believe that and it's going to be a little bit different transferring this year. Maybe we're going to know some of the NCAA, Jeremy Pruitt related stuff, whatever the case. So anyways, again, one touchdown game in the fourth quarter. Bryce Young fumbled the ball going into the end zone, trying to make it a two score game and he recovered the fumble and it was this weird review or Alabama the entire time on the sideline they're like hey um cool he fumbled he recovered the ball in the end zone so so what are we doing here what are we, what are we trying to figure out what in what world could SEC officiating come back and tell us it is not an Alabama touchdown based on what happened with this it, you called it a touchdown on the field the guy recovered his own his own fumble uh, let's let's just Call, call it whatever but you, you want. No, call can't know who would have recovered
1: the fumble other than the person who actually recovered the fumble. Let your eyes not deceive you.
0: You know, sometimes when a guy comes out of the pile with a football, I say to myself, no, he didn't really get that. <laughs> Very often optical illusion, some would say. Bryce yeah. Houdini, wow. Definitely. I thought outside of that play where, in hindsight, you would hope that your quarterback who already had the first down on that play and didn't necessarily need to reach across the goal line in that matter. I, I thought outside of that, he was fantastic and was again, showed why he is one of the Heisman trophy favorites. His poise is just unbelievable. There's this one play where Matthew Butler comes in and it's his, it's a, it's a, it's a, I guess it's a blindside blitz on the left side and, and, and not so much of blitz. Maybe there it was a stunt or something like that. And the big Tennessee defensive tackle just falls on him and you're like, man he should not be able to kind of get up and then he finishes that drive with a touchdown pass and keeps his poise he took another hit i think like later in the drive we're like all right he's not really phased by that we can talk about his weight all we want but when you see a kid that's not phased by that that's such a good good sign and i now find myself watching him wishing that we could see him with Devonte smith and Jamal Waddle. i really do because jameson williams has some great moments he really does um and it, when a linebacker tries to cover him like Tennessee tried to do at the very end uh, it, it's fun to watch Jameson Williams and you realize how fast he is Kid the jet there's no doubt about it and then he also had that bad fumble where he just doesn't quite have that awareness of where he is in the field where it's like alright man you gotta know that there's a defender behind you who's gonna be trying to trying to poke at that football but Listen,
1: I for one will not be feeling bad on behalf of an Alabama quarterback for his lack of weapons. Uh, yeah. I'll say it. I'm sure Fair. by the time he leaves Alabama, there will be a new version of those two players that we just don't even know yet. He'll get there. Yeah, like this is yeah. obviously his first. That's the crazy. This is like his first season. Like he's really only going to get better from here.
0: I think so, too. And I, I think we're seeing some of the, the teachable moments. And if I'm an Alabama fan, looking at the rest of the quarterbacks in the top 10, Feel pretty good about my chances knowing that you got Bryce Young and when so many of these quarterbacks are just continue to struggle and look uh, just very inconsistent. Even Caleb Williams in the first half against Kansas, you're like, dude, what what in the world is going through your brain right now? This is this is not the level that you need to be playing at. So Tennessee obviously made mistakes in that game, still had too many penalties and down 38 to 24 where this game really kind of got to that level where you're like, oh, this isn't close. If you just look at the box score was when they were down 38 to 24 and they're they're trying to to get that touchdown drive to to at least make it a close ball game and at least make Alabama defend have to sustain a, a scoring drive. So Hooker and Javonte Payton just are not on the same page. It's picked off just like that. Then very quickly after 45-24 Bama, it felt like five minutes earlier, the Vols had an outside chance to win. They put forth a promising effort against Bama that felt different than two years ago when Jared Garantana went rogue. Mm-hmm. It felt different. And I, cause I, I was the guy two years ago who was saying Tennessee fans, you were not that close. You need to <laughs> let this go. You need to understand that what you did might have been encouraging to a certain extent, but you did not get closer to Alabama with the way that you played football Saturday night. I don't know. It felt a little bit different. It it did. And and I know it's considered another blowout loss and a blowout loss is probably coming against Georgia because that defense, I, I don't know, but I, I still think that the, the Tennessee defense looked better than probably what the final number would indicate. And I came away from this thinking that sooner or later, they're going to get a rival they're they're going to catch one of these florida georgia alabama teams off guard and they're going to have what it takes for a full 60 minutes despite the fact that they're three and 31 now against those three teams since 2010. Oof. not great not great Oof. but dare i say better days could actually be ahead. Is it three and thirty no, you know what? I think it's three and thirty-two, because it's after Bama. Yeah, three and 32, 0 and twelve against Bama, one and eleven against Florida, and two and nine against Georgia, who they'll get to see in a couple of weeks. Hey, we'll get bad to make it work. <laughs> I know, <laughs> no, I know, my bad. It, for, I was feeling sorry for him. You just tacked another loss on there before I was even done. <laughs> am I crazy for for watching that and feeling better about hypo in Tennessee?
1: it's it's tough man because like we got on here and like the first thing i said was like i need to go look at the box score of this game which is usually a bad thing to say but it's like i watched you know the first three quarters and like as bambo started like pull away i was like all right seen this song and dance before but it's like yeah i mean the only thing you gotta worry about um, i don't want to just do the box score thing but it's like the only thing you gotta worry about for tennessee is boy do they need to still learn how to play complimentary football like if you look at their like time of possession man it was 1934 to 40 26 that is the that's the problem with the high ball offense you know what i'm saying we've talked about it over and over again it's that once it once it gets going it's going but once it stops it stalls out and the other team just beats you into a pulp but i will say on the flip side of that that's why the nuance of this game is really important we we talked about it or you said to start the segment it's like whatever you wanted to get out of this game, you really could have, especially if you were being, if someone were being disingenuous about it, if they were like, oh, well, see, this is why Alabama's elite. Well, see, this is why this. It's like, really, you could look at this as two separate games. You have the first three quarters where it was a back-and-forth game. Tennessee very much, I think, looked like they belonged, at least. I I think that they would. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's the key.
1: Yeah, and we've talked about it so many times about not running from the moment and Acting behaving as if you're not scared when you play Ma- when you play Bama because you know, we saw this with A and M when they beat Bama. Seventy to eighty percent of beating Bama is just believing you can beat Bama. After these numbers and stats, the that- beat you over the head. For three quarters, they looked like they were right there. They looked like they were, maybe not, they never had the upper hand necessarily, but they had, you know, they had like an early lead in this game. Like they, they had done enough to where they were, it was, it, it was a good game, you know? Uh, then, you know, at the end, like I said, that that's the downside of the hypo thing is that when the wheels fall off, they really fall off. But, but I will say this, and we talked about this. I will say I was wrong and a little bit too pessimistic about Tennessee we're still talking about a program that, like you said, we don't even know what the NCAA implications are for Tennessee. Um, They obviously are switching from this ground-and-pound, archaic Pruitt system to the Hypo system. So you can attribute a lot of what's happening right now to just attrition. You know, you get to the fourth quarter against a team like Bama, and they got four and five stars coming off the bench when they're winded. And Tennessee's got guys that, I mean, you saw their transfer list coming into the season. And so if you really want to talk about it, it's like, well, I mean, that's almost the best-case scenario against a team like Bama because you know once you start getting into your second, third, fourth-string guys, and those guys are on other teams. Those guys are starting on Bama. Some of them, the stars from Tennessee are now you know on, on these other good programs. So you got to hand it to Josh Heupel, honestly. And like I said, if you're, I don't know which Bama fan would be pounding their chest after this game, but if if that's your takeaway based on the final score, I just don't know what to tell you because this is a Tennessee fan that was gritty and they just didn't have the dudes. They didn't. They ran out of bodies at the end of the game.
0: And that's that's the other thing that I, that I sure brought up earlier. We're playing without Cade Mays, their best offensive lineman in this game, the Georgia transfer. They're playing with a banged up Tyon Evans, banged up Jabari Small. Their running game really wasn't what we've kind of come to expect at this point. Mm-hmm. And they still had a chance in the fourth quarter, which considering how it's been against Alabama in years past, where, you know, getting to 24 points. Like I said, I I told you in the preseason, I told you right before this, I said, I think this Tennessee offense is going to score more points against Alabama than it has since 2003. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. They hit that 24 points. Did they leave some on the field? Probably our better days ahead for this offense, I absolutely think so. Hey,
1: man, it sure I'm, wasn't I'm, in garbage time because they just kind of totally played exactly. three quarters of football. So it's like, that's exactly. the other side of this. It's like, well, at least we scored our points when they mattered. Like.
0: Right. On the Bama side, never look down on a win, especially after what Saturday produced with a couple of couple of top 10 teams really, (laughs) really struggling there and and looking like, Hey, this is uh, Oklahoma state loss um, lock of the week to not exactly work out because Iowa state won, but didn't cover that was frustrating. And then Penn state of course had the nine overtime pillow fight against Illinois. So never take a win for granted. Be grateful that your fan base got to turn Bryant Denny into a smoke-filled haze midway through the fourth quarter. Those are good things. Mm-hmm. And uh, don't don't necessarily assume that's a given, even though Saban hasn't lost to an SEC East team at home since Matthew Stafford walk-off 2007. Man, that's crazy. what a step. Yeah, that is a long time. So there, there's, there's that, and oh, by the way, Henry toe with the smoke him if you got him line. He gets to smoke the cigar on the Bama side instead of being on the Tennessee side. I should have brought that up in the in the preview that we did, and how how strange that would probably be to go from sideline to sideline in that rivalry because you don't see that happen from year to year as much. Now with the new SEC transfer rules, we can actually see something like that happen. I get it, he deserves to have fun. Had to be a little bit awkward though, after all you've probably put into that on the Tennessee side, but whatever. At this point, let's accept that Bama is gonna be imperfect. It's late October and they still do a handful of things every game that just make you go, eh, this doesn't quite feel like a Saban coach team. Roughing the punter penalty, horrendous, you can't have that in that spot. The Jameson Williams fumble that I brought up where he just doesn't quite have that sense of where he is on the field. Also really, really bad at a spot where you're already down in that game and you're down after the first quarter, that was the most that Alabama had been down in the first quarter in this rivalry since uh, 2012. So like weird things like that, And, and again, the breakdowns in the back end and the secondary were the things that you hoped would have been fixed weeks ago mm-hmm. and maybe those things just are going to happen and it's just going to be a matter of whether or not you have capable offensive personnel to take advantage of those things so the question is can an imperfect alabama team go all the way in a, a season that appear, that appears to have a lot of imperfections and i still think that they are capable of. Now I would pick Georgia to beat Alabama neutral site. I've been on record for that for a long time now, and I'm not going against that all of a sudden, but Bama is just going to be different it's going to be a lot more close calls. And there's going to be moments where as Bama fans, they're going to have to sweat some of these things out in ways that they didn't in 2018 and 2019 and 2020. And I think that is just what you need to probably expect. And they probably won't even have the same sort of ball control that they had in 2017, where I know the offense couldn't really get going with Jalen Hurts that year, but they still were so dominant defensively that it didn't really feel like that. And then the three years prior to that is is Kiffin. So the offense you knew was capable of going off at any given moment. So it's just a little bit of a different year for Bama, and they're still figuring a lot of things out. And I don't know that they're going to be a perfect team in November, but I, I do think that if you're if you're looking at all the different things that have happened in college football to be still in that spot with a chance, that's all you can ask for at this point. It really is.
1: All right. I hate to like, stick you in a wormhole again, but it's like, it wouldn't even really be impossible if two lost Bama got in this year given the fact that every good team is struggling with every bad team in the world uh, i'm just saying i'm just saying it wouldn't be impossible I'm potter it. they told us it would be impossible in 2007 even later in the season to this point i'm just saying in a four-team playoff oklahoma's not any good man like we joked about it last week like i just i there's if you, if you are alabama and you have these moments like at the, the end of this game where you look like the best team in college football I just, you got to look at that and be happy. Like at the end of the day, it's like, you're not in a pillow fight with uh, Brett Piloma. You're not out here in a dog fight with Kansas whose power went
0: out. You're not, you're not like, they're- What a sight. <laughs> what a sight that was. Both of those things that you just said, a pillow fight with Brett Bielema and the power going out at Kansas and just inviting people into the stadium because you want more people there. And like this and is what, not charging it, them and Cincinnati
1: was just in a, a siege, a war of attrition with Navy. Like they were they were in a, a ground war with Navy. It was bad. So like point being is like, yeah, if you're not Alabama fan, like you said, like enjoy it because there's no other team out there that you're like, Oh, this dude would smoke Bama. And if it is, it's Georgian. How's that going? Historically, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. yeah, you got it. This is going to be a super fun season for Bama because they're coming off of a championship. It's not like they got to prove anything. It's like these are new you know, coordinators or whatever. Bryce Young's new. Saban's probably having. I mean, he's probably not having a great time because he's saying. Yeah, Pete
0: Golding's still a little too old for some Bama fans. If you say. <laughs> that on on Saturday
1: night. I keep wanting to act like he's like our age to like make myself feel better about him. No, he's just not very good.
0: It's OK. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk about Ole Miss on Arch Manning day, uh, Eli Manning Day, mm-hmm. not Arch Manning Day, Eli Manning Day, apparently, that's what we were told. I kept thinking how perfect things were setting up for Lane. <laughs> Loved the, the Manning 10 sweatshirt. He's got the Eli Giants jersey on. You got Arch in the house for the game, obviously. He's he's taken in all the action after he was on TV on Friday night on ESPNU. Mm-hmm. His team lost, but he still had that play where he takes off with his legs. We're like, oh my God, Arch Manning's incredible. The recruiting pitch was clear as day, clear as day. Hey, you become a legend here, like your uncle, like your grandpa, you're going to get treated like a god. And personally, I think getting treated like a god in Oxford sounds incredible. (laughs) That sounds a lot of fun, man. Like It was gorgeous there. As Cole Swindell would say, it's like, God, let me dial up the weather. I mean, just (laughs) perfect, 76 degrees. If you could close your eyes and be at one place on Saturday uh, of anywhere in college football, it would have been the growth mm-hmm. That 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 atmosphere, sixth biggest crowd ever at Vaught-Hemingway Stadium, and they play an LSU team who, you know, for a little while looked like they were gonna give him a fight, but you still end up winning that game, and Lane Kiffin ends up sending probably a loud message to, to Arch Manning, and that's the unique thing about the Ole Miss pitch is that You know, two of the three names that are retired there now are Mm Manning's, And so now you can say, hey, if you come here, you become uh, you become treated in a different sort of way than you would even in Alabama, even at LSU, Georgia, Clemson, Texas, whatever, where they have a bunch of guys. They have a bunch of guys who have come before you and done this. They have a bunch of guys who have come after you and done this at Ole Miss. It's a little bit different. It just is. And I'm not saying that that's my way of my my take for a while has been that I think Arch Manning will end up outside of the SEC. Mm -hmm but what a pitch it was for Kiffin. I'm sure he wanted to score a little bit more, but still to be able to come away with a 31 17 victory on a day in which we didn't even know if Matt Corral was going to play. He ends up playing and he ends up getting a win to, to, to keep pace, so to speak, in the SEC West with one loss, of course. Um, this is what, what I think is the, the takeaway for, um, for Ole Miss on that side. Besides just Arch Manning and, and creating this picturesque day that, uh, trust me, I love the Midwest, but you can't compete with what, what just transpired in our We're Oxford. slowly that, converting that just, you every week. Oh, That's
1: my personal job. Dude. I'm just going to play that uh, uh, Illinois Penn State game on repeat and be like, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this again? Or do you want to do this down here? Look
0: at this. Look how pretty I've this changed. is. Look, man, I have changed my mindset on this because I have experienced many, uh, many beautiful false Saturdays in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And when that those leaves are falling, it's like mid 50s, you got a sweatshirt on, maybe a little bit of gray, some Ugg boots and you're just like naturally <laughs> I've got my Ugg boots on. I've got my PSL. No. Um but there are there are certain atmospheres in which you you're like okay you know what no this isn't quite as good as as what we saw that was like if you could close your eyes and picture a Southern day I'm as you can tell I'm very much envious of anybody who was there in Oxford on Saturday it looked just fantastic, mm-hmm. Ole Miss did something we've rarely seen in the Kiffin era, and I was wondering if we we're going to see this at all in 2021, but it turned to the defense to do the heavy lifting fewest points allowed to an SEC team in the Kiffin era. And after those first couple drives, it just seemed like Chance Campbell spying Max Johnson was the exact thing that Ole Miss needed. And he was just in his ear hole for the rest of the day until Garrett Nussmeyer came in and actually looked pretty good slinging it and might've given LSU fans enough reason to be like, oh, hey, let's move on to another quarterback. (laughs) Let's see if this kid is is gonna be the guy. Corral clearly was not at 100%. You saw him slide in this game though, which was encouraging. He got a nice little applause from, from the Vaught Hemingway crowd. But you saw the ground game and the defense take over, mm-hmm. and the ground game especially. I am such a big Snoop Connor Snoop fan. Snoop Connor the lad. We love Snoop Connor. The man, he is the man. And every time he he carries the ball, and Ole Miss fans will do like it's it's almost like um, it drop it like it's hot. Snoop. When, when, was it for? A, Exactly. Love yeah, that. That's it. I, I love it. And he looks like he's shot out of a cannon. The, I hated that fumble. I, I think that's such a ridiculous rule, the the fumble into the end zone and then it goes to the defense. I know some people say, well, you have to give the defense something. All right. Why are you giving them that when they've already allowed 100 yards or, you know, they've allowed you to get to, to the goal line and then all of a sudden you're going to give them that advantage when the ball goes out of bounds, nowhere else on the field. Can you fumble out of bounds and then still give give over possession? Anyways, dumb, dumb thing. Even more encouraging was seeing Jerry Neely run like that. Mm-hmm. He had that touchdown where you saw that burst. You're like, this is the five-star kid that is now finally back healthy. He's been dealing with some concussion symptoms. Does the Saquon Barkley celebration in the end zone. Love to see that. Good for Ole Miss because no Braylon Sanders, still no Jonathan Mingo, And on a day in which well, will I don't know, I, I watched the first quarter of that game, I'm like, vintage interim coach O right now. Did you think (laughs) LSU was winning that football game based on that premise alone after the first quarter? Uh,
1: No, but uh, (laughs) I don't think LSU is ever going to win another football game, dude. So, you know what I'm saying? Wrong person to talk to But, uh, yeah, no, no, I, 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 like... It's, it's exactly what we talked about with Tennessee, man. It's like you got half your roster, all this stuff is going on. Once you start to get late into the game, it goes pretty bad, especially against a guy like Lane who could just drop plays in his sleep. And you're right. It's like it wasn't the typical, like, Matt Curl drop dropbacks so where we're like, oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like it's about to be some deep bomb that goes against Arkansas. It's like, no, yeah. like it's probably they're just going to beat you over the head with your own mistakes, And like, which is always a, you know, it's, it's, it's very nice to see that type of repertoire for Lane Kevin
0: how many times did Max Johnson, once they started defending the slants on the RPOs and not having Keishon Butte obviously hurt, if they have Keishon Boute in that game, maybe it doesn't skew as much as it did in favor of Ole Miss but once they figured that out and how to cover that how many times Max Johnson would just be rolling to his left rolling to his ro- left and then Chance Campbell there he is yep. just <laughs> ready to blow him up he's either getting hit really hard or he's going to be fading out basically like out of bounds as he's trying to make some last ditch throw just did not work for LSU ran the ball better ran the ball better again and looks looks alright with Ty Davis Price it's a shame for them that they couldn't figure that out early but yeah we, we, we had the moment with Coach O2 where he he did the hard count on fourth down in LSU territory <laughs> when they were already up a touchdown. And he does that massive fist pump. And you're thinking to yourself, he's going to have some fun today. I think he's going to have some fun today. This game means a lot to him, obviously, because of what what happened when he was the head coach at Ole Miss and the way that it just did not work out for him at all. But it was pretty much downhill from there. Someone said that they showed Katy Perry in the stadium eating corn dog, and then it was all Ole Miss after that. <laughs> <laughs> Bro,
1: Coach Co- O's Co- situation so funny. Somebody had a, uh, a tweet about this. I think it was one of the uh, forecast guys, but it was like a, like Coach o was just playing with House Money and it was like him on the sidelines just like smiling. Like he wasn't like slamming his headset down. Like, good for him. And they went for it randomly. Yeah. And went for the goal. Like he's just like, what you gonna do? Fire me? Like I love that. Like it's just like we're all in the same boat with LSU. It's like, well, we do have to play the rest of these games. That's the tough part. We would love to just be dope with this season, but we're not. So we're just gonna have a little bit of fun here.
0: Well, and that's that's kind of the good thing if, if you're if you're LSU and and you can now be like hey we can get a real look at Garrett Nussmeyer. and it's not like you're you're trying to get Max Johnson all these all these reps in that sort of way and you can like really see what you have in the future to be able to work with now uh, what, whether or not that's going to all of a sudden give LSU a shot of life, I don't know. I think it's a little bit tough to judge that based on the defense that Ole Miss was playing down the stretch mm. and having to adjust to a new quarterback. And I thought Max Johnson did some things all right until Ole Miss seemed like they just had him figured out.
1: Well, he does like on two se- things, to be fair. So, yeah, what you just said about slayers and RPOs, like, well, that's the Max Johnson playbook, not even really a dual threat anymore. So, if you can stop those two things, buddy, and exactly. Boutez out there to just catch things one handed, yeah. it's like, well, we're just gonna pack it in today.
0: Go Tigers! They couldn't tackle bute if their lives depended on it last year. Oh, like man. that was, that, that was such a, that was like one of the best individual games in recent memory from an SEC skill player. Mm-hmm. Like they, the Ole Miss, and they they couldn't tackle him on that on that last on that last minute touchdown. So Ole Miss was trying to avenge a loss in this game. Think about this, and this gets overshadowed because of his persona and and, and whatnot, but. Lane Kiffin took over a 4-8 program, Mm -hmm. and they had that story that came out in Clarion-Ledger from Nick Suss about how half the team was going to quit. And it was ugly. It was real ugly. Matt Luke getting fired was supposed to be this moment that set Ole Miss back. Mm -hmm. And maybe if Keith Campbell doesn't swing for the fences and get Lane Kiffin, maybe, maybe it would have. But Lane stepped into that situation and didn't necessarily overhaul the personnel. He didn't do like what Mel Tucker did at Michigan state where Michigan state went to the transfer portal and they got a ton of these guys. Now they Miss has some guys from the transfer portal, obviously and chance Campbell, the addition that he has been for that defense has been monumental. And I, I don't want to discount that, but it's not like he all of a sudden looked at all these skill players and was like, I need to get new ones to fit my system. He has made it work with them. And I said, Ole Miss fans were, a a bit unrealistic with their expectations of getting rid of Matt Luke and said, look, you you guys just need to accept that it's the SEC West. You know, seven and five would be great. And here Lane is in year two and they're gonna be a top 10 team by the time people are listening to this Mm -hmm. and feeling really, really good. And meanwhile, like I said, sixth largest crowd ever at that stadium. You're hosting your biggest recruit in two decades since the other Manning came along, Eli, who, by the way, was there as well, like sort of getting his number retired, sort of, you know, playing second fiddle to his nephew, whatever. And don't do the thing, by the way, some Ole Miss fans might be listening to this saying, oh, Robert Kimdichie was a higher rated recruit. Manning's a bigger deal than Robert Kimdichie, okay?
1: If you're sitting there telling me that Robert Kimdichie was a bigger deal than Arch Manning, yeah. Congratulations, man, that. man. <laughs> right.
0: we're hey, cool. We're to, If you were Scott Woodward watching that football game and you thought to yourself, you know, this is exactly what I would love to have for my program. Wouldn't blame you, wouldn't blame you. I, Lane would be in our, my number one choice. Said it the other day, saying it again, that confirmed so many things that I've thought about Lane and his ability to build program and how much things have changed for him in the last decade. Because the guy gets it and that was, Pretty, pretty convincing showing I thought from his side, and who knows? Maybe Scott Woodward is, is looking at that, thinking, "Yep, I got my guy." Just wanted to see it up close, and now I got exactly what I need. Don't want to be, you know, uncouth or or or, or be dis- uncouth. uncouth. What the don't want to be
1: disrespectful. Don't want to commit a faux pas. Don't want to be. <laughs> or or, you is know, that
0: on a Sunday uh, morning? Don't world, be, what are you
1: doing? Trying to be respectful is what I'm trying to be, Connor. But yeah, don't want to be. Don't want to be whatever about it. But yeah, I mean. That was my takeaway. I was watching Lake Kiffin on the other sideline. I was just like, "Love to have this guy coach by SEC team." You know what I'm saying? Like, not, no spiteful. Mo- like, what was the "I think you should leave" thing? Don't have make anyone have their worst day at work. I just, I, just, I, I was watching. it. I was like, man, it sure would be really nice to have this guy lead by by SEC team by the tunnel. And that was it. That was my. I was like, well, seems like one of these teams is a very good coach.
0: I can't believe you just dropped an uncouth on this podcast. Unbelievable. I I got to limit. I'm
1: one of those people that can get really flowery with my vocabulary. I don't do that on here because boy, would we be insufferable if we both started doing that to each other.
0: (laughs) Uh, I need more uncouth references from you in the future. We'll we'll put that into the the contract and make sure that we get. Okay. All right, let's let's talk a little A&M. Uh, and by a little, I, I really mean a little.
1: <laughs> the lad Zaboulia, man. I turned it on to see the lad Zebulia ball out, and boy, didn't I see that.
0: <laughs> Poor Zabulia Zabulia Noland, as many people know him, uh, across the Palmetto State, of course. This was ugly for South Carolina in ways that I didn't think it'd be quite that bad. I, I said they were going to be very, very much overmatched, the offensive line against that a m defensive line. That was going to be bad news bears. But at one point, it was like 465 to 13 in terms of total yards. Dan Mullen would have lost his mind looking at that stat. That's There's a national like, champion. Hey, numerous banners at that point. <laughs> Let's hang the banners right now. South Carolina had 15 yards of offense in the first three quarters. How? How? It's not all Marcus Satterfield. It's not all Shane Beamer. It's not all and Noland. I, I pronounced that wrong. Zabulia, right? I imagine it being a Star Wars character now, like Zabulia. Yeah. Anyway. Good point. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. A&M's, AM's good, and AM has gotten better, and they have now won three games in a row, having averaged 40 points in that stretch, which, by the way, includes a win against Alabama. Wild to see how crazy things have turned. And that game was very much what we thought AM was going to be, or at least what I thought AM was going to be coming into this season. You have the four skill players that really got heavily involved and looked awesome. Anaya Smith returns that first punt, 95 yards for a touchdown. Spiller and A Chain both over 100. A Chain ends up with a career high. Weidermeyer scores twice in the first half in this game. That's everything we thought AM was capable of being. And the defense was lights out and these pressure. South Carolina had no idea what the hell was going on. What if AM had just found a way to beat Mississippi State?
1: <laughs> You're asking the
0: real questions here, Connor. I'm asking because think about this. If they had just found a way to beat little Mississippi State, which now looks like one of the most baffling SEC results of this season so far, they had found a way to win that game, they'd have one loss, they'd control their own destiny to Atlanta. We'd be talking about them in the playoff discussion. And instead of AM having this roller coaster season, it'd be, yeah, they had that bad game against Arkansas. They faced a defense that was ready to roll. Zach Calzada, first SEC start. All right, kind of chalk it up to that. But they would be sitting pretty right now because A&M suddenly looks like, hey, maybe they will beat Auburn and Ole Miss to end the season. And maybe if this is the team that we're going to get moving forward, because the offensive line has figured things out. Mm-hmm. The offensive line was a disaster in the first half of the season. They have absolutely figured things out. And I didn't want to just say that based on the way that they played against Mizzou, where you and I could probably get 100 running against Mizzou. <laughs> combine. Combine. It, the combine yeah, really combined, yeah. Combine, yeah. Combined.
1: We'd be a little lightning and yeah. thunder, actually. <laughs> we catch a lot yeah. of screen passes. <laughs>
0: And we use lightning. Uh, we use that loosely, very loosely on this <laughs> podcast. Your boy might not be cracking five zero on the 40 time. We're, we're, still, we're getting close, but not quite there. Um, that's, that's the thing that's so bittersweet about a and right now because they're, they're looking good. They, they really are. And that's what you would hope a team like that would do to South Carolina, who's bad, a, a bad football team, mm-hmm. 125 out of 127 in percentage of returning production from a two-win team. They were going to be bad no matter what. Jason Brown, I don't know if he's the answer moving forward. Uh, he, again, I don't want to read too much into playing against guys who aren't starters and what guys do down the stretch in those moments. Talked about that with Garrett Nessmeyer. It's a little bit unfair. Of course, it's gonna skew in their favor, but he did look all right in that part. Man, wild what if though? I just wanna pl- I wanna replay the season with just AM beat Mississippi State. <laughs> Just to see where things would be at in the West right now. The West would be bananas right now if that were the case.
1: I want to, like, okay, so it's exactly what we talked about with Mississippi State getting to a bowl if the, you know, if that Memphis play went the other way, and then we kind of realized, like, well, you know, they probably shouldn't have beaten La Tech either way. It's like, that's how I feel with Jimbo right Dubois. now. It's like, well, you know, I want to feel bad, and I want to be like, oh, that sucks, but at the same time, Don't lose to Mike Leach, man. Just don't lose to Mike Leach. I I just, it's one of those situations where the adjustments he has made now are things that we, two idiots, made pretty much instantly. We were like, you know, this right. Is probably how this needs to go. And this is a coach in Jimbo Fisher who we have pretty high standards for, not even because of his contract, but because he bamboozled America into thinking that not only E.J. Manuel, but also, you know, Christian Ponder were great quarterbacks. So, like, he's a guy that historically has made bad quarterback, average quarterbacks, look great. And it's like, you knew you had an average quarterback and you refused to acknowledge him and try to help him succeed. So it's like, yeah, from the from the Colorado game, like, there was like that three, four game stretcher where it's like, oh, you don't want to win with this guy you want to make this guy look as bad as yeah. possible so like,
0: yeah i just and jordan brought that up yeah, that, that's a great point I, the adjustments have been there they they have now adjusted to where they're not having they're not treating zach calzada like he's haynes king he doesn't have that mobility yep. he can't do the same things that he can he can't make these throws on the run into tight windows in the way that haynes king was expected to and now zach calzada is I'm not saying he's all of a sudden all sec quarterback or anything like that, but now you have receivers who are getting separation and you have an offensive line who's giving him a little bit of time. And when you cater this offense to him where you can keep him in the pocket and he can make some of these throws and you're willing to run the ball more with a chain and spiller. Yeah. You're better. You're a better football team. And it's a shame that AM couldn't figure that out a few weeks ago, man. M- That's my big
1: take. AM t- t- M- t- is like it's like, you know, when you're in high school, I know you were never in this situation, but I was numerous times, where you're like doing the math on your 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 final and you're like, dang, I gotta get like a ninety to get like a C or a B in this class. And it's like the Why would I be doing that? I'm the exact guy who would be doing that what I'm looking at like a seven page Google Doc that you think like, come on, man <laughs> I, I was, you know what I'm saying, but like being that guy, it's like at the end of the year, it's like you were looking, you were like, Oh man, like how am I here why do you like to get a 90 to get a c it's like well because you didn't do this homework you didn't tell you half-ass this you did xyz it's like that's where Jimbo is right now with this season it's like okay you again want to feel bad for you want to be like wow you're really sol you're really in this situation that sucks for you it's like well also you probably should have just beat Mike Leach you probably should have taken care of little things and hopefully this I hate to be introspective but we love to be introspective about ourselves not about other people hopefully this season kind of makes him realize like hey man Change, don't don't believe in yourself all the time. Take a step back and let's see the, read the room a little bit next time something like this happens.
0: So now maybe AM still has a chance to get to a New Year's Six Bowl and we have to ask the question, as we often do on these Sunday recap pods, number two team in the SEC West. Is it AM? Is it Auburn? Is it Ole Miss? Who would you take in that discussion?
1: I I mean it's it's gotta be Ole Miss. It's gotta be. I mean that god Auburn, man. I just, I can't stop watching them play football. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's not even a ridiculous thing to say, because whatever, but uh, yeah, it's got to be, it's got to be Ole Miss. I mean, it's crazy too. It's like, that's why I love football so much because it's like basketball things are always a little bit, like they're on the of blowouts, but it's like, you can look at this Tennessee team that really just got blown out against Florida and had three great quarters against Alabama. And then like, conversely, it's like Ole Miss, you could argue that, you know, that that Bama game was a blowout and I hate, hate to be this guy. You know me, never this guy ever, but it's like, they went for a lot of fourth downs and stuff. Like, that game was lopsided and they never really had a shot in the game but at the same time it's based on how everything has gone this year it's like you know if you play that game 10 times maybe they went 2 or 3 of them I I think it was like a you know what I'm saying but it's just it's tough because their one loss was so it feels like they got exposed or whatever but then you see how the schedule is kind of played out it's like "Mm, this might just be the second best team I don't really think that was anything to knock them down further than where they need to be which is probably 2
0: yeah and the good thing is we're going to see these 3 teams play each other Mm -hmm in the next, in the next few weeks. So we're going to have an answer to that, but for now it's a, it's a very intriguing question it could just be a week by week thing. And we really, we really don't know. Um, Funny how we saw the worst teams in each division face off on Saturday with Mississippi state, which I think it's fair to say they're again, we always ask the question, who's the worst team in the West? Probably Mississippi state still owns that title. And then Vandy, the worst team in the East, so you see those two teams face off and it's 45 to six. Um, when we say that the West is significantly better than the East, we point to things like that. Maybe it's a little bit unfair to say that uh, because Vandy is such an outlier in terms of the rest of the SEC, but maybe they're not because South Carolina um, needed to play 60 minutes against them at home and needed Zabula, Zabula, Zabula. Zebula. Yeah. Yeah. Needed him to pull out some rogues. Anyways. Takeaways, any other takeaways from Saturday? Let's talk about the the new overtime rules. Yes, please. I actually don't mind them. And I know that everybody is tweeting about it as this nine overtime debacle is happening, saying, oh, my gosh, we need to go back to the old overtime rules. Look. Would I rather them figure out targeting and faking injuries before reassessing overtime? Yes. Let's, let's let that be known. If I have a list of priorities for NCAA rules committee, let let's put that a little bit lower. There are more pressing matters but, to get to. Put But to think
1: this earlier. You brought this up, and I fully agree. I don't know if this is a thing that lots of people say. It's just both of our opinions, apparently. The way the end zones are officiated is bonkers. It's like it's nineteen twelve out there with the turnovers and everything. I would like put targeting number one, that number two, and then there's like a pretty big gap because it's like I don't understand exactly what you said. It's like why does the defense need help here? Anyway.
0: We have a pylon cam, we have pylon cams so though. that's good. And we do nothing that. At least we've that. been able to figure that out. <laughs> we,
1: we, we, we can tell if it's the best possible situation or the worst possible situation based on a hair's breadth for the offense. Anyway. <laughs>
0: yes, we absolutely need that. More cameras in the end zone would actually be good, um, especially for, for overtime. But we got so mad at the overtime rules because these teams weren't scoring. <laughs> like that. that's really what this comes down to. If they're scoring back and forth, and if it's like, oh man, they convert, they convert, they convert. And what did they convert? Like twice, maybe? <laughs> Nine overtimes? If they, if they were converting, we'd be talking about it in a totally different way. But because Illinois and Penn State set offensive football back to not just the 20th century, but the 19th century, we can't really sit here and say that that was the best example of this new overtime system. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I thought watching it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And if anything, I mean, this is a great example of what it should be because you can't be a coward and kick the ball. And I feel like we were texting at, whenever that happened. You were like, well, they can't kick that and I was like, what? <laughs> no. I, I looked up, and I was like, well, these two teams can't kick. This is going to be a disaster. Boy, was it. I loved every second of that. And to be honest, to be honest, as I don't, maybe it doesn't go, you know, that many overtimes, but giving these teams the cowardly ability to kick field goals and still get out of that game with like 20 something points, I think would have been so bad. And so looking at this and making them score a touchdown, making them put their feet with the ball in the end zone with such compelling television. And I think you're absolutely right. And if these had been two good offenses, it would have been a lot more fun to watch them go back and forth. But yeah, I just did the math while you're talking They They got in the end zone a combined total of three times because they had that one OT where they both scored and then the next OT Illinois scored and Penn State didn't. And so literally it's like, yeah, like this is do it. Get in the end zone. That's what football should be about. I I actually liked it. I don't know.
0: I'm looking forward to the 30 for 30 that they make one day on that game. Can only assume that there there will be that. If we had a it just meant more version on the Big Ten side for what we do with Saturday tradition, Mm -hmm. that game would be automatic. We would need to do that game and do an entire podcast devoted to just that. It was that horribly awesome. It really was. That's the only way that we could possibly describe what happened in Happy Valley on Saturday. Just bizarre, bizarre. Um, Any thoughts on Mike Leach's candy takes? Do we, we didn't bring that up earlier. Mike Leach, apparently when he wins 45 to six, he just gives all of his candy takes and shout out to Alyssa Lang for being willing to, to ask that question and understand that we need Mike Leach's Halloween candy takes big fan of the sprees that you get from the dollar store. You got to go to the dollar store. He's still willing to do that. Candy corn sucks. Agree with him hundred percent. There's no debate about candy corn. It's just bad. It's like black licorice. What, What are you doing? What, why does this exist? This, this is not a real thing. We need to, to just remove this from any circulation. And if people really want it that bad, people can get drugs. People can find places to get drugs. They can find ways to get their black licorice and their candy corn.
1: Like, the candy corn thing is so... All right, so whenever someone's out on something that's popular, whenever you like... Okay, Connor, whenever you don't like something, you have a usually a pretty sound reasoning behind why you don't like it. You're not just a non-conformist. I can appreciate that about you. If you don't like something that other people like, you have a very th- good thesis. The people that are pro-candy corn, I think are just doing it for attention at this point. Like, it's like, have you... I'm fat, dude. I've had all kinds of candy. I love candy. I love <laughs> sweets. I've tried to eat... If i'm fat and you put candy in front of me i should refuse it you know how bad that candy is
0: so you're saying candy corn truthers are earth is flat people
1: pretty close actually yeah this is pretty close they just want to say something to get a reaction it's like the people that insist on arguing pineapple and pizza it's like okay you know what i'm saying like if you want to just fight with people about something i guess you know
0: I've had it before and thought it was actually better than I expected. And I hate pineapple. Like the smell of pineapple usually makes me gag. It's this weird, I, I had like some weird childhood thing with it, but it, it, there is something to be said for that. But that, that that reminded me though, and and Alyssa asking that question and also eating ribs earlier in the game. What a queen! And eating what a mashed potatoes dog. with her hands. That, that is the way that it's done. Friend of, the, friend of the program, Alyssa Lang, doing the Lord's work on that. But but seeing Leach actually get to answer those questions reminded me of, oh yeah, we haven't really seen him in his element because he hasn't won a ton yet and his offense hasn't really looked that good. Shout out to Will Rogers for the way that he played in that game though, when he was clearly banged up and for whatever reason, Vandy wanted to send extra pressure instead of just doing drop eight the entire time. But whatever the case, we need more of that. And if there's a reason to root for Mike Leach, it's because we need those little minute clips mm-hmm. to get us through when the slate is a little bit weak. It's a little bit weak. All right. Okay. A few weeks ago, um, Chizik just texted me out of the blue to check in without anything really pressing to get to. And we we talked on the phone about a week or so later. And at the end of the conversation, he's like, hey, I'm flying into Orlando on Sunday night. He was going to be spending some time with, with Gus Malzahn on Monday at UCF. And then he had a speaking engagement as well. So he goes, hey, let's grab dinner. And we closed the seafood place, High Tide Harry's down. Shout out to uh, uh, listener Garrett, who sent me an email about it after I tweeted out the picture a few weeks ago. Um, but anyways, it was awesome. And I, I wish I could have shared all the, the different stories and things that we brought up during that conversation. But we um, gave you a little bit of a, of a sneak peek into some of that and we kind of rehashed on some of those things. So uh, anyways, here is Gene Chiswick. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is SEC Network Analyst and National Championship winning coach Gene Chizik. Chiz, I I really enjoyed getting the chance to catch up with you down here in Orlando a couple weeks ago. I've heard a lot of people say that there's no good seafood in Orlando or that Red Lobster is Orlando's finest seafood establishment. Chiz, I, I need you to tell the people that High Tide Harry's is no joke and that we actually do have seafood down here in Orlando.
2: Yeah, we broke the code, didn't we, Connor? I mean, that's what, Mm -hmm. that's what the narrative was. But when you, uh, when you came up with High Tide Harry's, which by the way, I had never heard of and, and B, A, never heard of, B, never been to, uh, it's going to be a go-to place. So I can promise you I will be back in Orlando and I will be visiting High Tide Harry and I am a seafood snob and it was excellent
0: that's that's the the best endorsement you can possibly get in my opinion like that's that's all the orlando haters you know listen to that we'll clip that one for for the people um in non-food subjects i want to talk about some coaching things with you and this ed ogeron dynamic is a very popular topic of conversation not just because of the way that he got fired but because of all the external factors that went into it I, i think the two situations are are very different and the more you read about some of the things that he did away from football that impacted his ability to coach you realize that this wasn't just about wins and losses but if there's anybody who knows what it's like to prove people wrong win a national title only to then get fired two years later you you understand that situation albeit in a different context i, I want you to go in whatever direction you want with this but what's your reaction to seeing the way that all of
2: this has played out in baton rouge well, Connor, I think you you hit some very important uh, points. You know, people get let go for different reasons. Um, you know, some are strictly football related. Uh, some are football related and other things related. And look. we can act like we read things and we know things. we We don't know the day in day outs uh, of what happened in Baton Rouge. Uh but we do know that um there's certainly other noise out there uh which indicates that there were some other things happening within the program that the uh the people in charge were not happy with. That's the bottom line. So, you know, and, and it had to be there's probably some teeth to it, uh simply because, you know, you come off a huge win Saturday, uh, beating Florida, uh back to back years by the way, when things, you know, when your back was against the wall and things did not look good. Uh, so, so it would be, I would be hard pressed to think it was just the results on the field. Um, it seems like there was some other things going on. You know, we don't know what it's like every day, day in and day out in the building with the players, with the assistant coaches, relationships, uh, you know, culture is everything, Connor. And if you're not having the culture being built the right way, uh, then that's a long-term problem. And it seems like there's some of that. Um, you know, with me, I can say yes. You know, people were kind of relating it to my situation where, uh, you know, I won a national championship. Two years later, I got let go. Uh, mine was completely different. You know, ours was on the field related. Um, you know, we, uh, we didn't have a good season. And I totally get, uh, you know, what people have to do. I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, I think that I was building something really special there, the players in the building. Uh, And what surrounded me uh, on a daily basis in there uh, was a a, a really good culture. Uh, We just needed a couple of tweaks, and I think we could have got that thing, the ship, righted uh, quickly. Um, There was no off-the-field issues. Um, There was nothing, you know, that, you know, I felt like culturally, uh, you know, was a problem. Uh, And I had a fantastic recruiting class that we held on to, to the very last minute. So, um, you know, the the situations are different, although the result is the same, but again, we're just trying to read between the lines from the outside. We don't really know, uh, but we can speculate that it wasn't just on the field related. It was off the field as well.
0: And I always push back on people when they make that comp because Having got to know you, having understood some of the circumstances around it, having talked to players that played on the 2012 team and players who are on the 2013 team at Auburn who said, look, you don't rebuild in one year. That was a foundation that we had in place. And anybody that discounts the impact of the 2012 season and the coaching staff that was there previously is doing it a disservice. So that I, I would always push back on that. We always try and figure out from this standpoint when we don't have the, the exact perspective in the locker room of, well, what's it like when the coaching staff you know doesn't have the full attention of the players? What I think is almost more interesting is when does a head coach know when his administration has decided that it's over?
2: Well, I think it happens at different stages. Uh, you know, there there's a uh, there's a line of communication that you always have, uh, particularly with the AD uh, and anybody else that anybody else that you know is really a decision maker. That could be the president. It could not be the president. Uh, so there's a lot of different elements involved in who makes those decisions, but you know, Connor, I mean, you you can feel it, you know, it, um, when things go silent and things go uh, dark uh, and you're not hearing anything when you know that generally the communication lines have been wide open, um, then you get the feeling and, and look, you know, guys that I was around, we, we stayed in communication. I knew where I stood every step of the way. Uh, there was no surprises for me. Uh, they were very honest uh, as we move forward. But that isn't the way it is everywhere. And, uh, you know, so, um, but you know, you, you, even though you block out all the noise, you can feel this kind of oppression, um, you know, when you know things aren't going well and people are not supporting you uh, from administratively. Uh, and, you, and you know that. So whether they're communicating with you or not, uh, you you can get that sixth sense. One of the reasons you became a head coach is because you could read the room. You, you understood the environment. Um, and you were usually good at that. And so when things aren't going well and you feel like things are going south, if they're not communicating with you, that's certainly an indication that there could be, you know, trouble on the horizon for you.
0: One of the other things I'm not sure everyone knows about you is that after you were let go at Auburn, you stayed at Auburn. Uh, That place was your home. And even when you got the North Carolina defensive coordinator job, you're like, hey, uh, I'll get an apartment in Chapel Hill, but my family is in Auburn and I'm not moving them. I've seen people wonder why Ed Ogeron is sticking around for the rest of the year. And I can totally see this scenario next year in which the guy is seen running around Baton Rouge shirtless and people are like, why is he still there? Like, what, what is he doing there? Why wouldn't you want to get away from that atmosphere, that that entire situation and just go live somewhere else and do your own thing? I, I know it's, it's, it's a different set of circumstances, but can you kind of speak to that dynamic and why you didn't automatically feel that pull to get away from the place where you were going to be recognized as the guy who not only won a national championship, but also the guy who was fired by the big program in town.
2: Yeah, it's difficult times. Um, There's no question about what I was in for. Um, You know, the people in the community here at Auburn are very special. And so, um, you know, I knew that over time, uh, my situation would would even out and, and would be fine. What I was most concerned about was my children and my wife Uh, my family in, in general um, it's really tough on the, on them and people lose sight of the fact that there's so much eminence and so much, you know, hatred out there, particularly on social media and things of that nature. Um, But the bottom line is they all, they all have friends. They all have their, their people that they lean on and lean into in tough times. And all of those people were here. And luckily, you know, my children's friends, they weren't connected to football. Uh, my wife and I had a great set of friends outside of football that had nothing to do with football, and they didn't care if I laid asphalt or was the head coach at Auburn. Uh, they didn't care. So we we were able to latch on to those folks, uh, and I did not want to change the world for, for my kids. Um, they had their best friends here. We had at that point been here, I don't know, probably seven or eight years total uh, in our coaching career including the years that, you know, we met people when I was the coordinator here for three years. So uh, my kids and my wife, my family was very comfortable and this was my problem. It wasn't their problem. Uh, it was, it was my problem that became their problem. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that I made a decision not best based on what was best for me, uh, but was on what was best for them. And what was best for them is that we dug in, we got in the bunker, we let everything pass and as all things do, Connor, things pass, time passes, people see you differently. Uh, but the main thing was that my, my children were able to hold on to their friends uh, and not, up, you know, uproot them from, you know, what they're comfortable with. Uh, and then same with my wife. So we were able to lean on, you know, our, our, our great friends. Our, our kids were able to lean on their friends uh, and it eventually blew over like we knew it would. And you know, here we are seven and eight years later still here. So uh, it was a great decision, but it was one based on my family, not based on me.
0: I always think that's incredible. I, I really do. And, and I think that it takes, it takes a lot of guts to, to be willing to, to be in that place and know that even even if you're able to avoid it within your inner circle, it's still going to be within the community. If you pick up a newspaper, you're going to see it. If you listen to your radio and you hear it talked about, and then to to decide, you know what? This is something that I feel like is best for my family. I think it's it is incredibly noble to to do what you did and to to have that that presence of mind. Our friend Matt Berry threw out this idea that coaches need at least five years unless there are some off field issues or something like that, and I, I push back on that to a certain extent and say that with the money that is at stake now you're doing yourself a disservice if you dig yourself a hole even deeper like where would Arkansas be if they hadn't fired Chad Morris and hired Sam Pittman you know you look back on some of these things and you say well it was good that you didn't necessarily wait five years for something like that but I can see the the resistance from that as a former coach where do you kind of stand on that
2: Well, I don't know that you can draw a line in the sand and and say that there's a certain timeline, Connor. Um, You know, I think that, you know, there's, there's certain things that are happening within programs that on the outside look one way, but on the inside may be different. And I think it takes a comprehensive evaluation of where these programs are. Now, the fact that you're firing guys after two and three years uh, you know, unless, again, with that very extensive evaluation, you see that there's no hope. And that can mean a lot of things, whether it's recruiting, whether that's the culture that's being built is one that's not favorable at all. Uh, you know, there, there are some variables in there. So I think it's hard to say that there's a line in the sand. What I would say is that when you're not getting the results on the field, uh, dig into the reasons why. Uh, Because sometimes the reasons aren't just that clear, no matter how much money you're paying somebody, right? Uh, That can be everything from, you know, when the coach got there, how many true uh, bona fide players did he inherit? Uh, How many guys did he, you know, end up having to, you know, get rid of or, you know, for disciplinary, disciplinary actions? Or how many guys did he inherit that flunked out because the coach before him never saw through the academic part and they failed out so there's a lot of variables in there that create uh, different issues you know you can go in there and you can inherit a team that's very you know heavy with you know seniors or juniors and have a really really good year or maybe two and there's a huge drop-off in year three when the expectation is unbelievable uh, because you've given fan base so much hope but the reality of it is the roster is not built for that. The roster was built uh, top heavy with a lot of senior scholarship players that were good college players, and uh, the bottom of the roster were guys that you you know that never made it um, or that they dropped off in the recruiting trail uh, before you ever got there. So uh, I think you have to dive into the reality of what's really happening. And before, you know, the ADs and the administrators, you know, have a quick trigger, make sure you do an extensive evaluation because everything in black and white with your record doesn't always tell the story. And I'll use my as an example. I felt like we had a loaded football team uh, when uh, when I got let go and I felt like our recruiting classes were going to be off the chart that year, probably the best in the history of the school. Uh, and, you know, I felt like there were some really great days ahead if we would just uh, tweak a couple of things. And I think if somebody would have really delved into that, they would have seen that. Then Gus came in, did a tremendous job coaching, uh, made a couple of those tweaks, and you could see that the roster afforded him to be able to get to the national championship game. So I think that, you know, Things aren't always what they seem in the black and white record. Um, and with a couple of tweaks, things can get better. I'll give you a couple of examples. If you go back through the time, and I don't remember the year, 2015 or 14 or whatever, um, Gary Patterson goes three and nine. Were you going to fire Gary Patterson? So there were circumstances that happened, and he turns around the next year and wins ten. Ten. Uh, I'll use the exact same analogy with Brian Kelly at Notre Dame, mm. uh, four and eight. Do you fire Brian Kelly? Well, I don't think so because the next year he came back and won 10 or 11. And I can use that with Mark D'Antonio. I can give you several examples where that happened, where they they believed in him as a coach. They knew he was a good coach. Sometimes there's circumstances out there that dictate that you have those type of seasons. But when you do a thorough evaluation of where everything is – the answer is not always to fire a guy, so that's where I stand on that. I don't know that there's a line in the sand with how many years a guy deserves. Uh, I would just argue that you know you have to really do a comprehensive internal exam to see where everything really is.
0: Your successor, Gus, talked about it and kind of the the tweaks that he was able to to make you, I I know you were able to spend some time with him down in Orlando, um, you know, when when we were able to to see each other and meet up. And I'm always fascinated to see how a coach changes after dealing with being the head coach at Auburn, because I, I think that job is just so unique. And I, I know his season at UCF, his, his first year here has been kind of all over the place with injuries. He left the game the other day against Cincinnati to be there for the birth of his grandson. How different is Gus now, maybe compared to those last couple of years at Auburn?
2: I think he's a new man. I think he is, um, I think he feels like, you know, literally he's, he's got a new outlook and a new, um, you know, just a new vision. Um, I think he feels uh, like he's, out from underneath a constant microscope, and I feel like Gus's last several years here, he's always looking over his shoulder as to whether or not you know he was going to get let go or not. That's just the nature of being in this job when you have Nick Saban two hours away, you know, doing things in college football that will probably never be matched. So you're always being compared, you're always looking over your shoulder, and that's a t- that's a tough task. Uh, and Gus, quite honestly, did a fantastic job at Auburn. Uh, he should have never been let go. Uh, he's beat Nick Saban three times and I don't think there's anybody on the planet that's done that. Um, And, you know, but I think that um, when it was all said and done, you know, he had a sigh of relief. At least he knew where he stood. Uh, And I think he's enjoying coaching again. I think he's really loving and embracing central Florida. Uh, UCF is a great job for him. I think he'll stay there a long time Uh, and I think he'll do a great job there, but I think he's enjoying it again. I I don't, uh, you know, It's great when you know you're wanted, you know you're embraced, you know that the athletic director and and everybody there is 100% all in with you no matter what happens, Uh, and that's how he feels right now. So I think it's a win-win. It's a win for Gus to be at a place like that that embraces him, and it's a win for Central Florida to get a football coach like Gus because I think he's an excellent football coach. And had he not had these rash of injuries right now, I think you'd be looking at a completely different season.
0: I'll give you two options or you can go in your own direction with this. SEC Coach of the Year, Mark Stoops, Brian Harson, or somebody else?
2: Um, well, right now, I don't think it'd, it'd be hard to argue that Mark Stoops wouldn't be in the conversation. I mean, now, Brian Harson has done a fantastic job here. Uh, he's got his work cut out for him the rest of the year uh, in terms of you know, getting the wins. He's got Ole Miss, he's got A&M, he's got Alabama left on the schedule, so you got to you got to have a comprehensive look at, at what this may look like down the road. Uh, not that they can't win those games. I think every game on the schedule is winnable for Brian, but what Mark Stoops has done, uh, you know, he made a really tough change with Eddie Grant and his coordinator spot, and him and Eddie are fantastic friends. They have been for a long time. Uh, and uh, the way he's built the program, the built the foundation of the program is built to last. Uh, and and it's, it's got his handprints and footprints all over it, the way he designed it. Um, what he's done right now, becoming 6-0, and and if you look at the rest of their schedule, I mean, they can, look, as long as they don't, you know, let, you know have a Georgia loss hangover, I mean, these guys can win 10 or 11. So uh, right now, I think Mark Stoops would be uh, definitely in the conversation for any Coach of the Year awards, either nationally or league-wise. Uh, For what he's been able to put together at Kentucky. And I think people start to, they kind of forget, Connor, the struggles and how hard it is to to win at a place like Kentucky in this league. That, let's be honest, it's a basketball school. But Mark Stoops is slowly but surely making it a football school. So that in itself, I think, pretty much tells the tale.
0: Everything about Harson that we were talking about a few weeks ago, where it's the Georgia State game and he fires his receivers coach and he's got a quarterback debate on his hands, you're just kind of scratching your head like, man, I I don't know what what exactly is the long-term future of this guy, but this is quite the predicament to be in right now. He has since turned that around and I'll give him his praise because his decisions have worked out succeeding in year one at Auburn seems really difficult because of how quickly things can turn on you. What does it say about him that he kind of stuck to his guns and the moves that he has made so far has allowed Auburn to kind of weather that early storm?
2: Well, I'm very impressed with Brian, and I think he's a guy that that operates basically on his own principles and what he believes in, and he doesn't care what anybody else thinks. I think that's really obvious. You know, you go back to the Georgia State game where everybody around here uh, and I live here, so I know. As we talked about, you know, everybody here was just adamant that you know Bo Nix wasn't the quarterback of the future, didn't need to be the quarterback. Uh, you know, T.J. Finley was the guy, and and you know, you know how it is, Connor. Fans are, you know, what have you done for me lately? Well, what he did was he took him on a 98 yard drive and scored a touchdown, so they beat Georgia State when Bo wasn't playing well. But what Brian knew, because he's in the meetings, and I say this all the time, he's in the meetings, he watches him every single day. He's putting the guy out there that he thinks gives them the best chance to win, and that was Bo Nix. And they promptly go into Baton Rouge um, and they take down uh, LSU. Uh, they play Georgia the following week, and to be honest with you, played Georgia really, you know, pretty tough. Uh, and then turn around and get another huge road win at Arkansas. And think about this, Connor: how many guys can start their tenure off at any school in this league with back-to-back? road wins against teams, you know, that can beat you because they got great athletes and they got great coaches and all those things, but they marched into Baton Rouge, uh, and they marched into Fayetteville and came out with two wins. So, uh, for, for what Brian decided to do, he stuck to his guns. Uh, he is building a mentality and a locker room and a culture at Auburn. I think, uh, that's hard nosed. It's physical. Uh, it's based on principle and what he believes in, and he's not backing off it. So um, that's what I see when I watch them on both sides of the football. And uh, we'll see, you know, how the rest of the season plays. In. But if he can get to eight wins in his first year, uh, that's going to be a phenomenal. Uh, that'll be a phenomenal deal for him because four weeks ago we never saw that happening. Uh, yeah, and they've just continued to improve every week, and I'm really impressed with them.
0: I got two more that I want to get you out of here with. We don't talk about Cam a lot, you and I, and I, I don't know why, but I always find myself whenever I hear somebody compared to Cam, I think, I wonder what Chiz would think about this because Jeremy Johnson or Anthony Richardson, I heard KJ Jefferson compared to by Garrett Danielson a lot, and I always think to myself, Chiz has to just be sitting at home listening to these comps, going, everybody always forgets that Cam only had Nick Farrelly and then a seventh round guy around him, and what he did is never going to be replicated again in this era of college football. I, I'm always curious. So, what is your take when when you see somebody like, oh, Anthony Richardson is this year's Cam Newton comp, or you know, whatever it is? Do you have that that moment where you're just like, all right, guys? Let's, let's chill on that and let's maybe watch this person get to a playoff berth or, or do something of that nature before we go comparing him to one of the best players in college football
2: history. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that, Connor, because I, I do chuckle with that. Anybody that's 6'4 or bigger and 240 or bigger who's an <laughs> athlete that does some good things on any given day it, you know, draws the Cam Newton comparison. And let's be honest. Uh, This is a generational guy in college football. Uh, There was nobody like him, and I've been around five first-rounders on my own team, starting with Dante Culpepper back in the day, to Vince Young, to Jason Campbell. Uh, I've I've had five first-round quarterbacks on my college football teams, Uh, and that doesn't include Colt McCoy, who was a second-rounder, I think. So I've been around some really great ones over my time, this one's special, and he's different. Uh, and I think people, what people forget is exactly what you just said, and I'll expound a little bit. When we won the national championship with Cam, he wasn't surrounded with all these first-round players. I mean, look at Alabama's offense last year, which was a generational offense. Five first-rounders and a second-rounder on the offense alone. Go back to the 2019 national championship with LSU. Joe Burrow. He was surrounded. They had 14 draft picks on the team. He was surrounded with first-round draft picks at running back, wide outs. You know, the whole offensive line had a lot of draft picks on it. I mean, there was draft picks everywhere. Cam didn't have that luxury. Uh, On our football team, when we won the national championship, there was Cam, there was Nick Fairley. That was two first-rounders. Nick was the best defensive player in college football. Other than that, all we had was really good college players. And nobody made the NFL other than those two, with the exception of a free agent, Josh Bynes, who played for a long time. Nobody else played for more than three years. Um, and there was very few that did that. So he didn't have that surrounding cast. We went 14-0, and and Cam put that team on his back because he was good enough to do it. He was a great thrower. He was accurate. He was competitive When the game was on the line, he wanted the ball in his hands, and he didn't have great players. He had good players that were good college players to go to, uh, but he didn't have this slate of guys around him to take the pressure off of him. So uh, that being hard, it's hard, and and I do kind of chuckle a lot of times when I see a guy size-wise that's comparable, but the skill set is definitely more than likely not comparable, Connor.
0: Yeah. One last, last thing to get you out the door here with um, North Carolina currently has the number 87 defense in the country and they've gotten worse each year of the Mack Brown era. Mack is your guy. And I know you haven't closed that coaching door and we've talked a lot about how it would have to be the exact right situation for you. As much as I love seeing you on SEC Network on Saturdays, I've seen the way that you break down modern offenses, and I know how religiously you dial into to figuring out pressures and what works for this team, what works for that team. I know you got something left in the tank as a head coach. If Mac, or not as a head coach necessarily, but just as an on-field assistant, defensive coordinator, whatever it is, if Mac does indeed come calling at season's end, would you consider a return to Chapel Hill to be his defensive coordinator?
2: (laughs) Well, thank you, Connor. I appreciate the kind words. Uh, Yes, I feel like I have one more run in me. Uh, Where I'm in a great place is that um, I'm not gonna take a run unless I, you know, love the situation and the people that I would be working with. Um, And I'd be able to have an impact on young guys. Uh, that's it for me. I don't, you know, I've got a, I've got a chest full of rings and watches and championships and all those things, Connor. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not chasing that. Um, you know, a lot of guys are still chasing that. I, I'm not chasing that. I, I would be doing it because God gave me a gift, and that gift is to be able to teach and coach. And yes, I do feel like uh, I, I do have one more run in, uh, in me if the right thing comes along. You know, Mac is like my, my big brother. And I love him to death. Um, so I'll never say never. I love the TV gig. You know, you came and hung out with us the entire day, and you know we have a blast doing it. Um, but I, I, if the right thing came along, uh, I definitely have one more stretch in me, whether that's a coordinator job, a head job, or something that leads into a head job. Uh, I feel like I've got another run. But I'm not like these guys out there, Connor, that just you know have to jump in and chase that dream. Uh, I've been blessed, and I've I've been able to to accomplish a lot of things with a lot of great people around me that helped me do that. Uh, It certainly wasn't me. It was us. And if that situation presents itself, whether it's North Carolina or otherwise, and I do the evaluation, uh, I assess it, I talk with my wife and my family, and they're good for me to jump in for one last run because I always keep them abreast of everything I'm considering. Uh, then there would be a possibility for me to do that. So, um, I appreciate the kind words that you feel like I'm, I could do that. <laughs> oh, no. uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, I, I do, uh, I feel like I, I, I could, I could go and, and help somebody and, and have an impact on kids. And if I do it, that would be the main reason why.
0: I'd become the biggest fair weather UNC fan, although you would be part of the alliance. So I'm not sure that we'd even be allowed to have regular conversations without the <laughs> approval of Kevin Warren. So we'd, we'd have to figure that out. Cheers. Uh, this has been great, man. Really love talking to you as always. We'll catch up soon.
2: Connor, thank you, my man. And anytime, I'd love to be on. And thank you so much and have a great day, my man.
0: So on Saturday, I'm going to be at the world's largest outdoor cocktail party for the yeah, very first yeah, time. yeah, yeah. I'm pumped, man. I've never even been to Jacksonville before, which mm-hmm. is weird. Because I've lived, I've lived in Orlando for six and a half years. Still haven't been to Jacksonville yet. So i um, going to have a couple of different stories coming out from there. I'm going to get to see a couple friends while I'm there as well. I'm excited to see Georgia's defense in person. What I am wondering about with this game, and we'll talk about this more when we do the preview pod as well, midweek. Picture if Dan Mullen loses this one by 30 how much worse things would get for him, especially if this scenario plays out. Stetson Bennett, after what we saw from him last year in Jacksonville, where it was the ultimate, oh yeah, you're not the guy. You're not that guy, We need to go in a different direction. Yeah, you're not that guy, pal. And picture if Stetson Bennett is dunking on Todd Grantham's defense. Picture that. And what that would mean for Florida fans and how they feel about Damn Mullen, because if Florida loses, this is a wild stat, and you're going to see maybe some people throw this out there, and if they do, know that your boy threw this out there first. No, I'm kidding. Um, Florida, if it loses this game, will have four SEC losses going into November for the first time since year one of the Will Muschamp era in 2011. That was year one of Muschamp, post-urban. So we knew it was going to be a little bit rough. Year four for Mullen year four and that would be a really really tough pill to have to swallow at this stage of the season now hold on on.
1: sorry they have two four win seasons in there so you're telling me that fourth
0: sec loss going into november
1: so both of those years they essentially just kind of fell apart at the end
0: but fell apart at the end and they had um they had non-conference losses that were that were contributing to that They've, they've had four losses going into november but Think about it within league play and what that means. Because I, I don't wanna sound like too big of a jerk here, but Florida hasn't been judged by the same standard that it was held to during the urban era, where Florida is comparing itself to the USC's of the world, the Alabama's of the world, Oklahoma's, and it's national, and you're really legitimately competing for national championships. Mm-hmm. In the post-urban era, more important has been, what are you doing against the SEC? What are you doing against Georgia? What are you doing against LSU? What are you doing to give yourself a chance to get to Atlanta? And Florida to its credit has, has done that, albeit without national championship possibilities in several of those instances, but still Florida has usually handled itself better in league play than it has so far this year. So that would be that would be the key thing to, to point out what does that mean for Dan Mullen? Just something to keep in the back of your mind. Who starts a quarterback in this game, um, Stetson or JT, just Emory or AR. <laughs> Who two oh. dudes are gonna walk out there and take a snap and
1: we have no clue who they
0: are. So strap in. I think it's more telling who starts on the, I, I find myself more interested who starts on the Georgia side because I, I had this, this feeling that Dan Mullen is gonna continue to start Emory Jones. I just sort of feel like that, even though this scenario with a bye week to be able to prepare, you would think, hey, Probably a good time for a redshirt freshman to be able to experience this, to experience this rivalry and not just be kind of the change of pace guy. I, I said it on, on Matt Hayes' show that I did in. Uh, he has a show that he does at the start of game times in Jacksonville on Saturdays. Put Emory Jones back in his old role. Put him back as that like, hey, I'm going to spell you every once in a while to get the ground game going and let Anthony Richardson be the guy. Florida fans at this point want to see that? That gives them a much, much better chance to be able to stay on the field with Georgia because otherwise, yikes. I would not feel confident in the slightest for that one. I'll be surprised if Georgia doesn't win this game by three scores. Now, we're also, its while I say all of that, we're also like a close game in Jacksonville away from all of a sudden being like, oh man, Georgia's vulnerable. Dan Mullen has the blueprint. Everybody needs to copy this blueprint to be able to beat Georgia. Like that could happen. Do I think it'll happen? No. But given the way that things have gone in 2021, I don't know, wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world, would it?
1: Yeah, that's
0: um... so <laughs> You want to think about that. <laughs> I just, I
1: was so unnecessarily mean to Florida like last podcast, and we were joking about like the recruiting thing and everything, I'm trying to be nice now. Because, you know, last week was Florida game week, and it was the hilarious LSU game. And I'm trying to get back to being respectful towards them. Um, I would ask a question. This is a serious question. If you're a Florida fan and I, t- I take AR off the table, would you rather start Embry-Jones or Stetson Bennett?
0: That is a great question, Will. Because I would not think twice about Stetson Bennett. <laughs> now... But, but that's that speaks to the dynamic at play here okay. and it's about it's about what you're doing within your offensive system right the thing that i've continued to praise stetson bennett for since i guess since going back to the auburn game is that he has stretched the field in a way that he did not previously and he can make throws downfield where you actually trust him in those spots Every time Emory Jones drops back and throws the ball downfield 20 yards, if you're a Florida fan, you're assuming it's picked. At least you should be at this point. How could you feel good knowing that if you fall behind by a touchdown or two in a game, that realistically, you're, you're putting pressure on him to make mistakes if you're going to try and throw the ball downfield. It seems like just a matter of time. And he did it even against that LSU secondary, which was incredibly banged up. And it didn't matter. So, yeah, I would take Stetson Bannon over Armory Jones. I would.
1: Yeah, I just, the thing is, we, we always joke about, you know, respect the troops and Florida's run offense and how great it is. And shout out Army for hanging 70. Uh, this weekend. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Didn't they allow 70? Wake Forest had the 70. You know what, man? I might be bad at reading things. Either way. don't Same
0: colors, though. So, yeah. yeah it's all the same. <laughs>
1: you know, man, two kind of like off-gold teams. Sometimes you yeah. just lost the shovel. Anyway. So, uh, but anyway, so yeah, like you got their their run game, you know, has, has been what's kind of stabled them and buoyed them. And, Boy, howdy! Has been, uh, has been hopeful. Jordan Davis uh, up in the middle there, and those linebackers, man. The more I watch them play, obviously, you know, we can get the opportunity this weekend. But the more I've been able to watch them play, the more excited I get it for a Georgia fan. And uh, I was kind of explaining football to like uh, a couple of my family members last weekend, and I, I was talking about Dan Mullen's offense and you know, the, the screen passes and all like. I was
0: explaining they, football to some family members. It's well, a great sentence. Well,
1: no, sorry. I just, they weren't football fans. It wasn't like I'm. I know that's in. that's still, yeah. I, I love
0: that. Continue.
1: And, and they were just kind of like, hey, why is this like, what is this kind of, what, what is he doing here? And I was like, yeah, like the thing about this offense we've kind of seen over and over again is that whenever you get defenders that are smart enough to really figure out what's happening, it pretty much gets snuffed out. And when you talk about the swing passes, the screen passes, the misdirection, the, oh, it's an RPO, but it's this and it's that. I say, well, it's Georgia. It's. You know, if you do an RPO and it's like one of those dive RPOs where the dude's kinda like coming past you, it's like, well, you've taken that guy to the play, basically, and they're the fake is to Jordan Davis, and then you know, if, if you're pulling it out and trying to hit one of these quick crossers, those linebackers are just dynamic. I and mean, it's just they're yeah. not they're not going to get this the stuff that was working against LSU where it's okay, swing pass, the the classic um blanket on his name, fast dude from last year. Oh my gosh, from Florida. Um, first-rounder with Kaderi's the Giants. Tony. Toney. Tony. Yeah. The stuff that he just ate off of last year during the yeah. COVID year where nobody could figure it out. Like the swing pass, catch it, make two moves, dudes are in the dust. Like this Georgia defense, to me, as weird as it sounds, this Florida offense could really be a moment for this Georgia defense where we realize how, I'm really setting myself up for a cold take here, where we realize how dynamic they are because this Mullen offense tests the IQ of a defense. And, and that's what I think Georgia's strength is.
0: It doesn't though test the IQ of an offense if you have a quarterback who predetermines a read and then just throws in a double coverage. Which that's what ice. we saw a lot it's against nice. LSU. Right? Nice. I know you're trying to be nice. I know you're trying to be nice. If you're a Florida fan, maybe you're holding on to some sort of hope that Dan Mullen is gonna have last year's game plan where he just wheel routed Kirby to death, right? It was wheel route after wheel route after wheel route. You get Naquan Wright involved, you get Gamble involved, you get Zipper involved, like all these different guys who, whether it's a running back, tight end, you just find these different ways to have, have these, these busts, And you put a lot of pressure on this Georgia defense, this different Georgia defense that was more experienced in the secondary than it is this year, but you found those openings. And Dan Mullen deserved a lot of credit for that game plan because it worked. I don't think you can do that against this group I don't think you can have those long developing plays against a front like this and if I'm a Florida fan that's what I'm worried about and I'm worried about the idea of trying to sit back and wait for that when you know that you probably got a weak side rusher coming right at your grill and those are the instances in which you know you know you're gonna get Emory Jones and people can't see this at home so this is some bad radio but you see Emory Jones like just waiting for it to develop. he's looking at it the whole time he's looking at it the whole time and then coming on on his right side he gets that strip sack you know whether whether it is N'Kobe Dean or if it's Quay Walker or whoever it is coming from that weak side and all of a sudden you're just like well, that's a fumble, and that's a game changing play that you just cannot have. So, how does Dan Mullen figure out this Georgia defense? We'll see. But I think this is going to be a favorable matchup for Georgia. We'll have more preview stuff as well in the midweek pop. But we just wanted to hit on a few things there because you can never have enough conversation about the cocktail party, right?
1: Oh yeah. Real quick on, on last, last episode, I was like, yeah, I can't wait to see you navigate Jacksonville. I just wanna go record, I love Jacksonville. They have a festival there called uh, Welcome to Rockville that I've shot as a concert photographer, oh gosh, lots of times. And every time I've been there, everyone's been super nice, it's been chaotic. Jacksonville is a very, it's very similar to my vibe. You'll kind of figure that out when you go there, but talk to some people, <laughs> talk to some people like in their Facebook group or whatever and get some recommendations because yeah, it's like, you can have 10 different experiences in Jacksonville. You really can. There's like. All it, it's one of the more like eclectic Florida cities. It's huge, too. If you we, crazy fact about Jacksonville, it's like bigger than Atlanta, it's a huge city. Uh, people That's don't wild. know, that. yeah, people don't know that. Like, in terms of like cultural impact, people are like, oh, like whatever is Jacksonville, but if you think about like the metro area and the things that are there, it's actually like, maybe the biggest city in the southeast, like the way they count
0: it. So, anyway, should be a fun time. Hopefully, it's going to be an entertaining game. Um, whether that's a blowout or a true 60-minute game, we'll we'll kind of wait to see. But we'll have a lot of different coverage related to that. That's I, I, th- that's maybe, well, th- this is, the slate is better next week overall. The slate is better than what it was this, this past week. But I don't think we have any new games next week, which is kind of weird. So, yeah, first time all year that we wouldn't have any new games. I guess we did. Double really.
1: pumpkin patch Saturday?
0: Oh. Wow. Some are saying, unless you want to put the replay of Arkansas, demolishing Arkansas Pine Bluff on. Um, Shout out to Traylon Burks who probably could have had 600 yards of offense in that game, Mm -hmm. had he actually been able to play for a full 60 minutes. Um, Way to go Arkansas Pine Bluff for trying to press cover him and then send pressure and hoping that plan would work. It did not. Um, And that's Arkansas, Arkansas Pine Bluff. Thoughts on that, yeah. So anyway, we're gonna have a lot of different stuff going on this week at SaturdayDownSouth.com. A lot of great, great content that's been going up. I'm actually, pinch hitting this week for Matt Hinton, who usually does our Monday Down South. That is a very in depth process that, that goes into being able to, to produce that column. So um, make sure you check that out. Check out all of our great stuff Matt Hayes, first and 10. We've got so much awesome stuff, whether your team is in it, whether it's not even close, you just wanna be able to poke some fun at your own specific team. You know, we have all that taken care of on SaturdayDawnSouth.com. Leave us a five-star review. Subscribe. Go subscribe to our newsletter. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored. And Saturday lives forever wherever you get your podcast. Join the Facebook group and hear your name, Red On Air, with figuring it out, or bold and brash. Thanks, guys.